You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. I don't know whether you've noticed, but uh, many North American manufacturers go out of their way to keep themselves from being sued. Uh, As a result, numerous companies include stunningly obvious and equally strange warning labels on their products. And every year, for a number of years, there's a wacky warning labels contest that finds what it calls the most absurd and silly warnings attached to everyday products. Here are some of the winners. One was for a seven-inch decorative globe, and the warning label said that these globes should not be referred to for navigation. (laughs) The second prize that year was for a men's razor, and the warning said, never use while sleeping. (laughs) Got it. Another warning label, remove child before folding. What do you think that's for? A stroller, right? A Len Thompson fishing lure has on it, harmful if swallowed. (laughs) So, if you're having a good day fishing with a Len Thompson, you know that your pod is illiterate. If they've stayed away and you got skunked, you've come on a literate pod of fish, right? A rotary tool includes the following warning. This product is not intended for use as a dental drill. <laughs> and finally, may cause drowsiness, a warning label for Nitol one-a-night sleep aids. <laughs> yeah, obvious. All of these warnings are meant to keep companies from far-fetched harm by being sued. The stupidity of them is they almost make a mockery of those times when we do need protection from harm and we are legitimately afraid. Sometimes we get those shots over the bow of our lives, don't we? Like say a network provider goes down and our communications are broken and our financial resources are frozen and we panic when the house next door to yours is robbed and vandalized and you can see Jimmy Marks on the door jam of your house, which is basically a, a thing saying, we'll be back. When your company is downsized and you have a feeling that yours is the next job on the chopping block. Times when you really need protection from harm and stupid warning labels just won't do the trick. What do we do then? How do we respond when we are in danger and afraid, when the reasons are real and clear? How do we respond? Well, what I've found is that our response to fear or the threat of fear and danger is often very much dependent on the picture of God that we have in our minds and our belief in his ability or inability, willingness or unwillingness to intervene in our lives. What the Psalms of Korah, or the psalmists, the sons of Korah, the psalmists this morning provide us with, is actually a three-part description of the God to whom we can turn when things are terrifying and when anxiety seems like it's just going to roll us right over. A three-part description of the God to whom we can turn when things are terrifying and anxiety is overwhelming. 
You probably, well, maybe you heard the air show yesterday. I sure did from where I was staying. We had a chance to watch some of the planes. And it made me think of uh, watching the World War II footage. Uh, I watched it. Netflix version has a color one that's really odd to be color, but it's fascinating nonetheless. And I remember one episode that I had seen in black and white and then in color, and it was of the Battle of Britain. You may recall that, one of the most famous battles of the war. And it was a battle that took place almost entirely in the air over Great Britain and the English Channel. The original goal of the German Luftwaffe Air Force was to go across the channel and to bomb English airfields and, air and airplanes so that they could, all the planes could not fly and there would be holes in the runway so that they could never take off or land. That was the original intent. And if that worked, then they would launch Operation Sea Lion, which would be an amphibious operation across the channel. They would have air support for their own, from their own uh, air, you know, their own airplanes, but the British couldn't do anything because they were all grounded. The battle began in April 1940, and as it was, again, a result of targeted raids on airfields. But then on August 24th, a squadron of German planes accidentally dropped their entire payload on the city of London. The next day, Prime Minister Winston Churchill uh, paid the German capital city of Berlin a visit and did the exact same thing to them, just dropped all the bombs on the city. Hitler, as one would expect, upped the ante and began regular bombing, not of airfields, but of, Germans, or of London, English cities. And it ended up claiming, all told, at least 20,000 British lives, which is tragic. But it would have been far worse were it not for a series of air raid shelters that the British had built. When, this, when the air raid sounded to, to signal that the planes were coming, thousands of people would scurry underground into these shelters made of cement and steel designed to protect them. And it's really interesting because there is some footage of what went on in some of these shelters. And you would see people singing together. You'd see children running around having a great time, grown-ups playing cards, laughter even, all this while bombs fell. No need to fear. They were protected from harm in a shelter. Our psalmists start out with confidence in verse 1, saying that God is like that sort of place. It says that God, and in the Hebrew sentence, his word is first, therefore it is emphatic. God and God alone is our refuge, like a bomb shelter. The sons of Korah who wrote this would have been all too familiar with the atrocities of war, but they still wrote that God was this kind of shelter to them, protecting them from harm so that they need not fear. And yet that's not all that the sons of Korah said about the sufficiency of God in the face of danger. In the book of Daniel chapter 5, the Babylonian king Belshazzar held a great feast for thousands of his lords. The truth is the Medo-Persian empire was getting closer and closer to them. Their days were numbered and so they were going to party on their way out. Thousands of the lords, and in the process of being inebriated, he decided, 
It would be a great thing if we went and got some of the wine goblets from the, uh, that, that his dad had stolen from the temple and drink from them to have a, de a drunken debauch using sacred goblets previously used to worship God. But as they were drinking, chapter 5, verse 5 says that suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing, and Belshazzar's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him. He was afraid, is what he was, and notice his reaction physically. His joints went slack and his knees began to knock together. Fear caused his joints to go slack, so he had to sit down and his knees knocked together even as he was sitting. In essence, strength left him because of fear, which tells me that when we are afraid, we not only need ongoing uh, protection from harm, we need a source of ongoing strength, perhaps even to keep us from falling over. And when confronted with potentially harmful circumstances, the psalmist begin their prayer this way about the nature of God. God and God alone is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we need not fear. In, in praying this, they acknowledge that God can not only protect us from harm, but he can provide us with strength. And because the God that we pray to can protect us from harm and provide us for, with strength, there is no need to fear, even in some of the most terrifying circumstances. To make that point especially clear, the psalmist named two fearful circumstances that would be the most fearful circumstances that they could possibly think of. Say, and they're, they're going from greater to lesser is what they're doing. So if you do not need to be fear, fearful in this kind of a situation, neither do you need to fear in anything that is less than that. The two extremes serve as outer markers of terror. On March 11, 2011, Japan's most powerful earthquake happened since they had ever begun taking record. It hit the northeast part of the country and triggered a massive tsunami. Cars, ships, buildings were just swept away in this 8.9 magnitude tremor from the ocean. It actually happened about 24 kilometers down where it shifted and the water that swelled up from that hit land going at over 500 miles an hour which is faster than a lot of passenger jets fly. A year later, after all the calculations were done, Reuters reported the extent of the damage. 15,846 people died. 3,320 were missing, assumed that they had died as well. 16 tons of waste were dumped on the hardest hits area, hit areas. And believe it or not, the life expectancy was believed to be reduced by six months for Japanese women and three months for Japanese men. Why? Because the foundation of the world shifted, resulting in a tsunami. 
resulting in a tragic loss of death and even the shortening of lifespans of those who remained alive because of the impact of the terror and the fear on them. Now listen to what the psalmist described at the end of verse 1. Therefore we will not fear though, and here comes the circumstance, the earth should change. Earthquake. And though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, this is a picture of an earthquake in the sea where the, the, the plates shift to such a degree that mountains slip down. You can imagine how that would displace water and creates this incredible force that moves out from there to the point that verse 3 says, though the seas and waters roar and foam and mountains quake at its swelling pride. So what he's talking about is that this, this uh, tsunami happens and the water washes onto the land and it hits against mountains and actually moves them because of the sheer force of it. They're describing a tsunami. And it all starts with the shaking of foundations. It's a picture of the crumbling foundations of the world, which we will never experience in Lethbridge because we're not on any plates at least not in a literal sense. But perhaps this would apply well to personal earthquakes of sorts, where the foundations that you thought were stable have cracked and moved, like has that happened in the last couple of years? Where the plates of your world has, have shifted suddenly, disastrously, in a matter that would naturally bring fear, you know, sudden increase in rent in the place you're barely affording to live in or the place that houses your business, a rise in mortgage rates that may happen two or three times again in the next year or so, an unexpected, unwanted, unwarranted relationship fracture or failure, a diagnosis that doesn't flood your basement but your emotions with fear, even an outbreak of violence in your neighborhood or home, personal earthquakes where the plates of your life shift. But what the psalmists affirm here is that we need not be afraid even though the foundations of our world shake and crumble because we can confidently pray to a God who can protect us from harm and provide us with strength. Now, if an earthquake is one thing that would naturally make them and us afraid, war would be another. And though a few of us know a whole lot about war, for the ancients, there always seemed to be another war around the corner. They had no peacekeeping forces. They only had war-making kings. They had no Geneva Convention to control the barbarism with which wars were fought just a take-no-prisoners mentality. And if you've read the Old Testament, which I'm sure that you've had, and you've read of the wars, and if you've read outside of them about the nations and the barbarism with which they fought, it's just horrifying. Then you could easily understand the terror that you would feel if you saw a strong nation amassing on your border and then going over top of your border and running roughshod over fortified city after fortified city on the way to your fortified city. 
You hear testimonies of the atrocities being committed against your people. The ethnic cleansing by the invading army that is approaching you. That would seem like an apt time to be afraid, wouldn't it? And yet, it is this setting of a, an enemy army approaching Jerusalem that the sons of Korah have the, the confidence to write in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. She will not be moved. They use this same word, moved, three times in the psalm. It means, you know, obviously to move, but also to totter or to shake. We noticed it before in verse 3, referring to mountains quaking as the ocean's force batters them from the flood. Here, he uses it not to refer to mountains, but the city of Jerusalem. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. Now that's pretty confident if you see an enemy army approaching to be able to talk like that. How could they do that? In Isaiah chapter 37, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, is swathing his way through Judah on his way to the capital city of Jerusalem, the city of God. Hezekiah was a king of Israel at that time, and he he went to Isaiah the prophet and asked him to seek God on their behalf. And God responded by saying, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and my servant David's sake. And then verse 36 of Isaiah 37 reports that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And notice what he says next. And the men, probably the Jewish men, arose early in the morning, and behold, all of these were dead. Quite a number of Bible commentators and scholars are convinced that the psalmist had this event in mind when they wrote. Even though the enemies came up against the city of Jerusalem, it would not be moved. Because look at the next phrase. God will help her when morning dawns. Those who thought that they would move Jerusalem ended up being massacred themselves. In verse 8 of Psalm 46, it's almost like a look back at the morning that the angel of the Lord went out and killed 185,000 Assyrians. Perhaps a couple of common Jewish soldiers went up on the wall to watch and to see the lookout towers. And as they look across the land, they see Assyrian bodies strewn everywhere. A fire is smoldering over there, just down to almost burnt out coals. The uh, coffee pot that was boiling there is boiled dry, and a man is dead beside it. Over in the middle, the, the table that some guy was having breakfast on, there's Fruit Loops all over the table in the bowl upside down on the ground where his arms swept it as he fell. Over on the side, there's another guy with his face down in the water he was using to wash in. Vultures and birds of prey drawn to death circle and land and feed. 
Well, these Jewish soldiers, look, they would taken this scene and they know that they had certainly done nothing. This is unbelievable. God has killed the Assyrians that only a day before were threatening their lives. And they're free. So they bound back down the ladder two at a time, rushing towards the gate and yelling as they went, verse 8, Come and behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns chariots with fire. What a God he is. Those who thought they could move Jerusalem or massacred themselves. And in conclusion, to those who think they can fight against a God like that, verse 10 says, cease striving or be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Read this in context. These words, cease striving or be still, are intended for those who want to fight against the lordship of Jesus, not for Christians who need a break. These are not words intended to comfort, but to confront words of rebuke to those who try to fight against such a God. Cut it out. Because whether you realize it or not, I will be exalted in the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. You might as well give up and give in because sooner or later you are going to submit to me. Verses 2 and 3, the psalm says, You need not be afraid despite the shaking of foundations because God can protect you from harm and provide you with strength. In verses 4 to 7, he says, they say, you need not be afraid even though you are personally threatened because God can protect you from harm and provide you with strength. And yet throughout the psalm, there is a, a third theme, not just that God can protect from harm and provide with strength, but also that he is constantly present. Constantly present. Verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Constantly present. When the sons of Korah describe the, the city of God in verse 5, they say, God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. Constantly present. After God protects, in verse 7, the Lord is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, constantly present. And finally, after the psalmist calls on those who would think that they can fight against God to give up, he says, whether you like it or not, verse 11, the Lord is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Now, if we put this all together, this psalm says this, we need not fear, though the foundations of the world are shifting, though our personal safety is threatened, because God, the God to whom we can pray can protect us from harm, can provide us with strength, and is constantly with us. No need to fear. Foundations shift. Our persons are threatened. But we can turn to a God who can protect us from harm 
and provide us with that strength. And it's constantly with us. Paul Martin wrote a book called The The Sickening Mind, and it reports about the Gulf War in 1991. The Iraqis launched a series of Scud missile attacks against Israel. Many Israeli citizens died as a result of these attacks. And after the war, the Israeli scientists analyzed the official mortality statistics and found something that was quite remarkable. Although the death rate jumped among the Israeli citizens on the first day of the attacks, the vast majority of them did not die from any impact of the missiles themselves. Instead, they died from heart failure, brought on by fear and stress associated with the bombardment. Their hearts failed them for fear. Psychological studies done on the Israelis at the time showed that the most stressful time was the drum roll leading up to that fateful day on January 17th, and it peaked after the first missile attack. Because after all, there, were, there was enormous and well-founded fear on the part of all of the people and the government that the Iraqis would use chemical and biological weapons because, like, they'd done that before. So the government issued to Israel, the entire population, gas masks, and automatic atrophin syringes in case of a chemical attack told everyone to prepare a sealed room in their home. But after the first Scud missile attack turned out to be less cataclysmic than expected, levels of stress just declined remarkably. And as with other wars, they, they developed the ability to just adapt to the situation with surprising speed. Fear and anxiety declined, and death rate declined. There were another 16 attacks, but the Israeli mortality figures over those next 16 attacks were no different than they'd been a couple years earlier. It was just natural death because the fear and psychological impact of the missiles had claimed the victims. It wasn't the missiles. It was all about being afraid. Now, we're, we're not in a state of physical warfare. We're in a state of spiritual warfare, and I think we're in a state of cultural warfare, social warfare, that can make us focus more on our fear than on God, more on the possibilities of what might happen than God's power and presence to protect. And you might find yourself being in this fear cycle this morning, and you need this powerful picture of God to overwhelm your fears and help you to trust so that you can pray to him with confidence. And the sons of Korah who wrote this psalm are convinced that we need not fear, no matter how much things shift, no matter how much we are threatened because we can pray to a God who can protect us from harm, provide us with strength, and is constantly present. Let me pray for us this morning because we need not fear we have that kind of a God. 
Father, I want to lift to you my brothers and sisters today who are living with fear and much anxiety. I want to pray that you would intercede on their behalf and convince them of the reality of your power and your presence and your love and your willingness to help no matter the circumstances you find, they find themselves in. Bless with your overwhelming protection from harm. Your provision of strength when they feel like fear is going to take it away. And the assurance that your comfort is with us, no matter the circumstances that make you feel far away. We praise you for who you are, for your love for us today. We pray it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.